Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. This is Jimmy Johnson with my co-host Austin McCormick, and we have the privilege to have with us again James Dolezal to talk about divine simplicity. Welcome to the podcast again, James. Jimmy and Austin, thank you for having me. It's, it's a pleasure to be back. Um, before we dive straight into the topic of divine simplicity, um, since the last time we talked, you've you've had a change of position as well as residence. So, so where are you up to now? Where are you working? And things like right. that. Right. I, uh, for many years, was teaching uh, in the School of Divinity at Cairn University uh, and still do some teaching uh, for Cairn University. Um, and so I'm glad to be part of uh, the School of Divinity there still. But uh, in terms of residential work and full time work, uh, I'm now in Bakersfield, California, and am directing and teaching at a new startup institute, Radius Theological Institute. And Radius is not a degree-granting uh, institution or a, a sort of full-fledged uh, theology curriculum. We are an institute that focuses just on core doctrines of the Christian faith. And so every spring and every fall, we offer a 12-week semester of five courses, and those are taught at a MA, MDiv level. Uh, the reading level is, is also a grad-level reading, but there are no papers uh, and no exams. Um, and so students are just are just here in residence for the lectures and the reading and the in-person uh, instruction. Uh, we also offer some of our courses as modules so that uh, pastors who want a study leave can come in and take a week, uh, a, a 15 or 20 hour lecture week uh, on a particular section of a course. Uh, and so we just started up this fall uh, and looking forward to a new semester in the spring. We also bring in visiting professors. So I, while I teach the core three courses, uh, we bring in professors to give overviews of historical theology and a biblical theology, and those those professors come from uh, various seminaries. Well, thank you for sharing that with our audience as well as us. But to move on to divine simplicity, let's just start with a basic definition. What is the doctrine of divine simplicity? The doctrine of divine simplicity is that God is not composed of parts. Um, that's to put it as as basically as I can. Um, it, I think to the to the casual listener, uh, if you if you call God simple, uh, it may sound like an insult. Uh, if I you know if I said Austin, if I said to Jimmy, hey Jimmy, you know Austin, uh, Austin's a pretty simple guy. That could mean a couple of things. That could mean that Austin Austin is um, you, you know kind of keeps to the basics and and lives his life modestly, and that might actually be a virtue. Um, but it could also sound like an insult. Um, you say, yeah, yeah, J you know, we have we have a word called simpleton uh, in our English language, and it's never a compliment. And so when you say God is simple, it just sounds like the wrong thing to say about God. So what we don't mean by God is simple um, is that he's not deep. Um, or profound or perfect in being. In fact, it's because of his boundless depth of being and perfection of being that we say he is simple. All right, so we can unpack that a little bit. 
Um, just I'll give a for for your listeners who um, are confessional, whether you're talking about the 39 Articles of Religion or the Westminster Confession, the Savoy Declaration, the Second London Confession. In chapter two, uh, each of those confessions says, has a little phrase in it that God is without body parts or passions, and I'll I'll leave off the uh, the body and the passions for the moment. Um, I think once upon a time, maybe like others, uh, I read that little phrasing in the confession, and I thought that it was just God is without body parts because He's a spirit, and spirits aren't made of material bits, and so therefore no body parts. And certainly that is one dimension to the notion that God is without parts. But there is, uh, as we should be uh, always earnest to point out, there is a comma uh, in the confession between body and parts, and parts envisions something larger than simply without a body. Um, and if I could put it like this, um, I think I think some of this, if you want to understand the, the the rationale of this, is first to get a handle of what we mean by a part. Now in the I don't know. In the philosophical sciences, there's a sub sub subdivision of philosophy, which is the which is the the narrow boutique science of Mariology, um, which I'm sure is makes for riveting reading uh, and and late nights in which you just can't pull yourself away from your Mariological readings. Uh, Mariolo Mariology is is quite literally the study of parthood. That's that's what that is, and it studies the nature of parts and how. And what constitutes a part and what varieties of parts there are and how do parts relate to holes and vice versa? How do holes relate to parts? And, that, you know, it's, it's, it can be quite an elaborate and sophisticated science. Um, so let me boil the let me boil the myriological question down on parthood this way. Um, if we were to say if we're saying that God is without parts, then we would need to understand something about a part that makes it repugnant to the notion of God. Does that, that make sense? In other words, I can say that Austin, James, and Jimmy are composed of parts, um, and there's a way to articulate that, and then we can talk about what the parts are. But when we say that God is not composed of parts, not just body parts, but of any parts, then we really need to get to the question, what is a part? And so I, I think as simply as I can put it, no pun intended, is uh, that a part is anything in an entity that is less than the whole and without which the whole would be really different than it is. Uh, and that's, a, that's, I think, my best shot, at least, at a one-size-fits-all, what is a part, anytime and everywhere, and whatever variety you find a part, what is it like with relation to the whole? It's like that. It's less than the whole. Um, it's therefore distinct from the whole. And without it, the whole would lack some aspect of being. And for this reason, we say that God doesn't have these. <laughs> Uh, parts. So I don't know if that's, if you want to enlarge on that, we can, maybe that kind of goes into other questions that you had. So. Well, perhaps uh, you'll be able to speak more about that as we move forward in the conversation now talking about the historical development of the doctrine of divine simplicity. So can we move the conversation in that way? Yeah, let's do that. Um, so I already mentioned that you have this in a lot of the Protestant confessions, uh, 16th and 17th century confessions. The Belgic Confession opens up uh, with this as its opening line, that the that if you're an Orthodox Christian, the first thing you need to believe is that God is simple. I mean, that's just that that's what they that's what they start with out the gate. Interestingly, that's also the first article in the 39 articles of the Church of England. Uh, that God is without body parts and passions. For us, it's chapter two. Or I mean, if you're Second London Confession, it's chapter two, section one. If you're Anglican, uh, it's the first article, and it's the first thing in the first article. And if you're Belgic Confession, it's the same. But the the Protestant consensus on this is definitely not Protestant in the sense that it didn't 
have its origins in these Protestant confessions or 16th, 17th century Orthodox Protestants. The Protestants are probably at their least original <laughs> when they are holding on to a doctrine like divine simplicity. This is an inheritance from the medieval uh, uh, scholastics and from the church fathers that the, that the reformational Christians, whether you're talking about Lutheran or varieties of the reformed, uh, simply took over in an unmodified way. And, um, and when they do begin to expound it, sometimes they don't. Like the confession says God's without parts, but then the confession doesn't like launch into a disquisition about the nature of parthood and a kind of mini myriology for you. It doesn't, it doesn't, it, 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 it puts the, the truth in front of you, but it, but it leaves the truth with a lot of questions uh, that we can ask. And then if you go into the secondary literature, um, you'll find things like, um, you'll, you'll find theologians like John Owen or Stephen Charnock um, or, or earlier theologians um, in the Protestant tradition affirming that probably Archbishop Cramner, uh, the first Protestant Archbishop of Canterbury is the one who devised that exact formula without body parts or passions. I think that's his coinage, and then it just sort of passes over into the mainstream. Um, but where did where did Cramner get it? Um, Cramner was remembering that from his days as a Roman Catholic, and I think he wisely decided that that was one of the pieces of Christian orthodoxy that needed to be held onto and not reformed, so to speak, um, if that makes sense. I think sometimes we can get... we. As, as Reformed Protestants, we, we kind of fancy ourselves uh, as having made a major contribution to the history of theology and certainly not an insignificant one uh, if, if you hold to those confessions. Um, nevertheless, we need to be careful of not thinking that everything we contributed is original. Um, some of the wisdom of the Reformation is its deliberate unoriginality with regard to questions like the Trinity, hypostatic union and the incarnation of the Son, um, questions like uh, questions like this that were already sort of mainstays in the medieval church. If you go back, if you dial the clock back before the Reformation, you're going to find this as kind of a consensus doctrine throughout Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. Austin, to your point about history, um, it's if you go to like the Fourth Lateran Council, which I think is 1215 AD. If you go to the Fourth Lateran Council. Uh, the Roman Catholics have enshrined this doctrine long before the Protestants enshrined it in their confessions. Uh, the Catholics enshrined it in theirs um, in, in the uh, Fourth Lateran Council. So Catholics long before the Protestant Reformation were already on the hook, so to speak, <laughs> uh, for this doctrine uh, and were sort of by, by conciliar decree obliged to maintain it. Now, in terms of elaborating it, um, I'll, I'll I'll build up to the to the guy I want to mention, um, but you'll find you'll find this in um, Bonaventure, 13th century uh, Franciscan. You'll find this a little earlier than that um, in Anselm of Canterbury. Um, this is just a mainstay of his theology. If you dial the clock back even further and get to um, get to Eastern uh, fathers like John of Damascus, um, or coming over a little bit to the West um, in Boethius. Uh, you will find you will find uh, equally devout adherence to this. It's explicit throughout uh, throughout the Trinitarian theology of uh, of Augustine, um, and and it's not just Augustine too. You can find it in Athanasius. Athanasius will say when Athanasius talks about the generation of the Son, he says that the Son is not a part of God because God doesn't have parts. In other words, he's using simplicity as a guiding principle for how to articulate doctrines like the eternal generation of the Son or the doctrine of the Trinity. In other words, simplicity is not something that comes into their theologizing after the Trinity is settled. It comes in as 
a principle that helps them articulate the Trinity in an orthodox way. Um, so, and you could go back further. You could go back to Irenaeus um, of Lyon, who says that speaking about God as being without parts or not composed of parts, he says, as all the orthodox are wont to say, I, I, that's a, I think that's roughly what he says. In other words, you know, like everybody everywhere who's an orthodox Christian believes. So I guess what I want to say is historically, Oh, the, the person, the name I left out is Thomas Aquinas. And the reason is Thomas is, in my judgment, probably the most sophisticated elaborator of this doctrine in terms of, in terms of naming the different varieties of composition and then specifying why each of those is repugnant to the notion to, to the divine being. Um, he probably does, he probably does more heavy lifting than anyone before him or after him, so much so that when you read 16th and especially 17th century Protestant and Reformed discussions of divine simplicity, they almost all invoke the varieties of composition enumerated by Aquinas and with Aquinas for the same reasons as Aquinas deny all of them. Often they don't tell you that it's from Aquinas. And I think the idea is um, who didn't know that? You go out after, in other words, you don't have to say, well, I'm getting all of this from Aquinas. Yeah, we all know that. <laughs> It's it's that it's, it's such a commonality to this. Every by the time they were you know 14 years old studying at Oxford University, these guys already knew Aquinas's you know categories of composition and why each was denied of God. So later in adulthood, when they put that into their theologies, they don't need to say they got it from Aquinas. Anybody who can read a book knows you get this from Aquinas. Well, okay, nowadays we need to kind of bring that up and discuss it. But once upon a time, that was a commonplace. Um, but I guess to your point, Austin. Um, this is, it's a doctrine that today is highly contested and I think sort of widely undermined either explicitly or implicitly um, in our theology. It's sort of since 1750, I'll put 1750 as kind of a, uh, as sort of the death throes of divine simplicity. You're finding like a great expression of it in a Baptist like John Gill in his Body of Divinity. But after Gill, even in the Reformed literature, with, with a glaring exception of, um, of Hermann Bavinck and then maybe later Louis Burkhoff, with, with, with certain exceptions, um, for the most part, it kind, of, it kind of starts to lose its prominence after modernity gets a foothold. But I'll leave, I'll leave that off for another, for another moment. Um, I think historically, though, if you can sort of go back before 1750, what you can say is, this is, at least once upon a time, bread and butter orthodoxy. No one anywhere thought that God was in any wise composed of parts. Um, and that was kind of, that wasn't like a boutique sectarian view. That was, that was all, I mean, with few exceptions, and I want, by the exceptions, I mean heretics, that's everybody everywhere once upon a time. Um, and then, I don't know about you, um, when I went through my theological education more than 20 years ago, um, I bumped into it in Burkhoff, and I think that's the most I can say in terms of my initial theological education. I bumped into it. I didn't receive any um, explication or elaboration of it. It certainly didn't rate as something important uh, in in our in Protestant theology. Um, again, this is sort of late '90s, early 2000s. Um, it just was not. I mean, the fact that we're having a podcast about it now is, in some ways. Uh, uh, bewildering if you can think if you can dial the clock back 20 years ago when nobody anywhere was talking about this uh, if I can generalize um, anyway so hence uh, so much so I mean great it has historical credentials but I mean the real question is um, I suppose is it true because 
it could well be, I think unlikely, but it could well be that, you know, almost eight, almost 18 centuries of historic Christian consensus, East, West, and in between got it wrong. Um, it could be because the real test of any doctrine is its truthfulness at any moment, not its historic consensus. So we, we could, I'll at least put that out as a acknowledgement. You have to, every generation has the obligation to understand and defend this doctrine. Um, when doctrines aren't remembered, doctrines are lost. The truth isn't lost, but the knowledge of the truth is lost. So I, and I also want to be careful. Uh, yes, it has a grand historical pedigree, but I think we should beware of not letting that be the reason we believe it. Do you get what I'm after? Otherwise we slip into a kind of um, hagiographic sentimentalism in our theology. Um, and we should be in, in philosophy and theology. It, there, there's a real truth that every generation has to not start from scratch, start in conversation with those who've gone before, but we have to make the argument persuasively, each of us in our own minds and in our own generation. So I'll, and, I'll leave, I'll, that's what I'll say about the history. <laughs> and in the spirit of all that you were just saying, and this idea that we, we still have to ask whether or not it's true, let's transition to what is the philosophical rationale for divine simplicity? Good. Let's, so let's get into that. Why say that God's not composed of parts? Is that really a problem? Uh, and let's get to the philosophical uh, first and just say this. Um, it, it comes down to the note, it comes down to our understanding of how parts relate to wholes or vice versa. And what we, what we should say is that every whole in some respect depends upon its parts for some aspect of its being, for some aspect of its uh, of its reality. Um, and that God being the first cause of all things, uh, or that, or if you want to put it a little more philosophically, that which is, or that who is the first cause of all things cannot in any way be dependent on what is not himself. So let me kind of unpack it like this. I'll, I'll first start with kind of a theological question. If I asked, even if a Christian isn't, isn't inclined to think theologically and isn't conversant with church history and historical theology, um, and perhaps is not theologically savvy, but nevertheless is 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 a true Christian who is worshiping the true God. If I were to ask that person in the pew, um, do you believe that God depends on what is not God to be God? In any way that God is, does he depend on what is not himself to be such? All right, that might be a funny way of wording it, but I think that the average Christian is going to say no. Um, and, and I think if that's if that if I'm correct about that, I think I am correct about that. Um, then that person is already in his or her heart of hearts committed to the truth of divine simplicity, even though even though that person doesn't have a name for the doctrine um, and probably doesn't have an elaborate myriological schema by which to maintain the doctrine. You know, uh, all of all of Aquinas's categories of composition necessarily denied of God. Even if that person doesn't have that, the truth that this doctrine is designed to maintain is already adhered to. And what I mean by that is this: that that which is composed of parts depends upon those parts to whatever extent that part is a part. So uh, we could use an illustration. Um, if we were to take a, um, if we were to take, I'll take an artifact like an automobile, that's an, that's just an easy one for us to imagine. Um, if I were to take an automobile and say that, that my Nissan Altima 
depends upon that which is not a Nissan Altima to be the Nissan Altima that it is, um, it doesn't take a lot. It is. It's. It doesn't take a lot of um, genius to see that that's the case. In other words. Um, it depends upon four tires, none of which is a Nissan Altima. It depends upon two axles, also none of which is a Nissan Altima, et cetera. Depends on a steering column and fuel injectors. And um, and if you want to get to the full package with all the bells and whistle, whistles, it depends on the, the motor that motors the power windows. And it depends upon the air compressor that gives me refrigerated air while I'm driving. And uh, in other words, to be the complete, you know, to be the complete car that it is, it depends upon many, many things that are not a car. And ultimately, my car depends on what is not a car to be a car, namely the parts. Now, here's the point. The par so if you think of it like this, all the parts fund the being of the whole. Does that make sense? Uh, in other words, the is of my Nissan Altima. If you drove by my street and you saw it parked in my driveway and you said, hey, look, there is a Nissan Altima. Well, the is of that Nissan Altima depends upon a whole bunch of bits, with none of which is, in fact, itself a Nissan Altima. Okay, so there's a there's a sense which we can kind of conceive that the way that holes relate to parts is one of dependency. Now, some of the parts to which we relate are essential. That is, uh, in the sense of without them, we wouldn't even be the kind of thing that we are. Um, I'll just take a human. A human is a compound thing as well. It's a natural compound entity as opposed to an artifact for those who care. But the point is, um, like myself, I'll just take myself. I'm composed of several parts. I'm, compo I'm composed of um, spirit and matter or soul and matter. Um, my soul as such is not a complete human being. Um, it's essential to my being human, but it is not in itself a complete state of being human. In fact, I think that even saints who are in the intermediate state are not in their complete humanity and they're awaiting for the completion of their humanity and resurrection. In other words, a complete human is a body-soul composite. Um, and yet my body and my soul are not sort of um, coincidental to my being human, while neither of these is in itself human and neither of these is identical to the other because a part is not identical to another part. Otherwise, it would just be that part. Um, if, there's, if there's a distinction among the parts like matter and soul, and yet, and yet th these aren't dispensable parts. In other words, if you took away my body, you wouldn't have a human anymore. You'd have a human soul being sustained in an intermediate condition, but you wouldn't have a human anymore. If you took away uh, my soul from my body, that body wouldn't be a human body anymore. We would just rename it. We wouldn't call it a human. We'd call it a corpse. Um, and then we could do all sorts of things to it, like cut it open, fill it full of formaldehyde, bury it six feet in the ground, put it in an oven and incinerate it. Um, all sorts of things, which if it were a human, you would go, you know, you would immediately go to jail for doing all those horrendous things. But if it's just the body that was recently human and you get the idea that the body as such is not the human and the soul as such is not the human. The human is the result of these two parts in composition. Um and so, in fact, interestingly, when 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 the spirit leaves the body, um, that's the beginnings of literally decomposition, and then the body itself begins to begins to decompose as a result. Uh, my point there, though, is that without either of those parts, you don't have a human. But there are other parts I have. Um, if you could take the the analogy back to the Nissan Altima. You could still have a Nissan Altima, even if the air compressor is removed and I don't have air conditioning in it. Now, you know, the blue book value would go down, but nevertheless, you'd still have a Nissan Altima. You could get rid of the motors that do the windows and you'd still have a Nissan Altima. It would just be defective in some respect. But there's a certain point, and I'm not sure at which point, but there's a certain point at which it's not really a car anymore. Do you get what I'm after? It's not a defective car. It's not even a car. Um, I don't know exactly where that point is, um, but my my point is some of the parts are essential to it being a car, and the other part, uh, some of the parts are sort of um, 
super added benefits that make it a nicer car than it would otherwise be. Okay. All right. So here's the point though. Uh, oh, with, let's go back to the human analogy. Um, I have other parts. Like I have the accident. Like right now we're all talking to each other. Um, our listeners can't see us, but we can see each other for the sake of conversation. And I'm sitting in my black office chair. And so if you were to describe Dolezal at this very moment, um, you would say that he is sitting. He is a human who is sitting and he's a sitting human and is sitting is in fact a state of being in which I currently am. Nevertheless, when I lose that state of being, which is the accident of position, when I lose that state of being by standing up and taking on a new state of being, the state of standing, um, and I lose the state of being, I don't lose my humanity. My humanity loses one quality and it receives another. It loses one position and it acquires another. But that position is a part. It's just not an essential part. It's what we call an accident, something that comes upon a substance. All right, my point though is this. Whether you're talking about essential parts or accidental parts, it doesn't matter with regard to the question of dependency. Everything composed of parts depends for some aspect of its reality upon those parts. So the state of being seated is something actual in me that I can lose. I can survive the loss of it, but I can lose it. And when I lose it, I will lose the reality of being seated. Does that make sense? And so this is my point. I depend upon a whole complex of parts. Um, essential parts, accidental parts. Um, and there are, there are other ways to sort of carve up parthood. But my point is every whole depends upon the parts to just an extent that that part is a part of the whole. And also just a quick observation. And a part can't be the whole, can't be identical with the whole because then it wouldn't be a part because parts are less than wholes, but necessarily. If the part weren't less than a whole, it would just be the whole and thus not a part. I don't know. Is that all right? So enough for Muriology and my illustrations. Philosophically, the challenge of a composite first cause is this: um, if God is the absolute first cause of being, and yet He is the one, and you know, or the unmoved mover, or the uncaused cause, or whatever you want to say, um, if He is in fact that, then He cannot be composed of parts because things composed of parts are not absolutely first in being because they depend upon a reality that is funded to them by something more fundamental and basic than them, namely their parts. The way that my Nissan Altima is dependent upon realities more fundamental and basic than a Nissan Altima to be the Nissan Altima that it is. And that's kind of the, the philosophical rationale of this doctrine. If God is the first being that is the source of all things, behind which and back of which nothing, nothing funds his being, no, there's no source or cause of his being, then such a being cannot be composed of parts because then he just wouldn't be the first being. Um, not, not first in time, that's not what I mean, first in the order of being. Um, the one back of which we don't look for deeper causal explanations. All right. So that's kind of a, like, that would be, you're going to find an argument like that, certainly in Thomas Aquinas's natural theology, but you would find that exact same argument with that exact same rationale in like Stephen Charnock's existence and attributes of God, or in any number of sort of 17th century evangelical reform Protestants. So anyway, that was, if, that was your philosophical question. So we've talked about a definition of divine simplicity. We've given some talk to the historical development of it. And now we just finished talking about the philosophical rationale. Um, what is the biblical support for divine simplicity? Why should we believe it from the Bible? That's a good question. And so let's suppose that um, let's suppose that you're not taking your point of departure uh, in some kind of um, 
in some kind of infer inferential contemplation. You know, you contemplate the world and you realize that the world being composed of parts, whether it's existence and essence, most that's the most fundamental composition or, or, you know, form and matter or, or substance and accent, you realize that the world is not sufficient to account for itself. And that which accounts for the world has to be that which accounts for itself. And that which accounts for itself can't be composed of parts. And that's a kind of natural theology argument. And it does require to your, and I'm building up to your point, Austin, that does require a certain um, learned habit of mind that is, that, that can be, um, I don't think it's, I don't, I think it's less difficult than people per, portray it. Actually. Um, I, I'll bet most of our listeners right now kind of can follow the rationale of that. Um, but could you get to this simply by taking your point of departure from scripture? And I would argue uh, you can, the rationale will be the same, but the, the first um, point of consideration will be different. So I would, I go to a text like um, Romans eleven thirty six, where the apostle Paul says of God, that all things are from him, through him and to him, um, to him be the glory forever. Amen. Uh, and when he says that all things are from him, through him and to him, uh, it's simply, it simply means that if God is the absolute cause of all things, if all things derive from him, exist through him and have him as their end or their telos, um, then God himself can, then God, then God himself cannot depend upon what is not himself to be himself. Otherwise, not all things would be from God, in fact, God himself would be from the parts. The way that holes are from parts in the sense of they causally depend upon their parts, um, then God would not be the one upon whom all things depend. Namely, the things upon which God depends would not depend upon God. D does that make sense? Um, and so if you take a text like Roman or Romans 11.36 or any variety of biblical texts um, indicating that God is the absolute first cause of being, any text like that requires simplicity as a necessary implicate. So in other words, if God's composed of parts and wholes depend upon parts and God's the first cause of all being, then he can't depend upon parts. And you could go to, you could go to something like, like Psalm 90, um, where Moses says that, um, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And he says, before the creation of the world, et cetera, et cetera. And the idea is um, that God and all of his fullness of being is not derived, but is the source of all. Um, or you could go to something like, um, like Paul's um, answer to the Athenians in Acts 17, 25 and following, or 24 and following, where he says that the God who made all things does not dwell in temples made with hands. And then he has this little aside there. He says, as though he needed anything as though he needed anything. And uh, there's a world of theology in that little parenthetical statement of the apostle. Um, if he depended upon parts, he would need that which is not himself to be himself. Do you get what I'm after? In other words, there are just so many, there are so many statements um, that, that we should take at face value in scripture that just couldn't be true of God if he were composed of parts. In fact, later on, he, he actually juxtaposes God to creatures when he says, seeing that God himself, in other words, God doesn't get from you. God doesn't depend upon what is not himself for any aspect of his being. Rather, he is the giver of all. He says he himself gives to all life, breath, and all things. So that God is the giver of being, or he's the fund of being. He's not the being that is funded. Can I, can I say it like that? Um, and if that's the case, then he can't be composed of parts because parts are funds of being in holes that have them. Is that, if that makes sense. Again, I grant, that to draw that interpretation from the scripture, you you probably do need a a basic commonsensical part whole notion 
to get what I'm after to sort of draw that conclusion. But I would actually argue that most people have that, even if it's not articulated. Do you know what I'm after? I don't, in other words, I think most people already understand that holes somehow depend upon parts in so much as they are parts. I, I think that most people, even if they've never reduced it to an abstract discussion of myriology or parthood, um, they, they already understand that. And so that can't be the way God is if he's the one from whom are all things. Um, good? I don't know. That's, I guess that's the, that's the drive. The driving theological rationale here is the, is the doctrine of creation ex nihilo. In other words, if we can take that as our point of departure, simplicity is a net is an is a hardcore necessary implicate of just believing the doctrine of creation as presented in scripture um that you could go other places you could you could talk about aseity and you could talk about in you could talk about infinity um and i i've in some writings i've done i talk about those as well I, the infinity argument's a good one you'll find this in a lot of protestants which is um if god is infinite he can't be composed of parts because things composed of part because a part qua part is not infinite do you get what I'm after? Like, if it's a part, then it has to be less than a whole, and it's already de facto not infinite in being. Um, and then, therefore, an assembly of so an assembly of finite bits will never yield uh, an actually infinite result. Do, do you get what I'm after? And so, if you have if parts as parts are not finite, and God is composed of parts, then God has to be finite because you can't add finitude and get to infinitude. That's a you'll find that argument in John Gill and others as well. Um, those are a little bit more abstractive. I think the I think the most intuitive and straightforward implication for the doctrine uh, is derived from the biblical statements about God as the absolute first cause of being, as as the absolute creator of all things. Well, in the first part of our conversation, we have talked with James Dolezal about the doctrine of divine simplicity. We have considered a definition of this doctrine. We have considered the philosophical rationale for this argument, and we have talked about the biblical presentation of divine simplicity. In our conversation next week, in part two, we will talk about what is lost without this doctrine, and we will consider what are the blessings of divine simplicity. We hope you'll join us and tune in for our conversation of part two. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.